Hey friends, just quickly, my new book, The Proof is in the Plants, is now available. Get it from plantproof.com forward slash book. Thanks so much for all your ongoing support, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Human psychology is messy and it's complicated. It's really important for us to communicate in a way that increases the chances that people will make the kinds of changes we need them to make if we hope to really make a difference for farmed animals and beyond. Most people, number one, transition slowly. Asking somebody to stop eating animals is not simply asking for a change of behavior. It's asking for a change of perspective, a shift of consciousness, a change of lifestyle. It's asking for them to compromise important relationships in their lives. Relationships do not have to end because one person becomes vegan, but very often they do end up ending. And if we approach adult people and present them with an all or nothing, we are very likely going to reduce the chances that those people are receptive to the message that we need them to hear and to hear. That's Dr. Melanie Joy. And this is episode 112 of the Plant Proof Podcast. Welcome to the Plant Proof Podcast. My name's Simon Hill and I'm your host. I hope you've been keeping well. For regular listeners, welcome back. It's always a pleasure to be able to share these conversations with you. For new listeners, thanks for joining us. I do hope you enjoy today's exchange and we can keep the dialogue going into the future. By way of background, I am a qualified nutritionist, physiotherapist and science enthusiast with a passion for understanding how science can inform our food choices. Each week, I sit down with guests, each of whom who have a unique background and set of expertise, with the aim of having a thought-provoking conversation that you and I can walk away from feeling inspired by to better our health, the planet's health, and the lives of the animals that we share this experience with. Today's episode... While most of the episodes I do focus on nutrition science, I have become increasingly interested in the psychology behind our food choices. Why is it that we eat cows and pigs but wouldn't dare eat our pet dog or cat? Where does that belief come from? Is it something we are encouraged to ask ourselves? If not, is there a reason why? And so much more. At the same time, I've also become increasingly interested in what is the best way to encourage people to make changes to the foods on their plate. While I am vegan myself, I have always maintained there is no such thing as a perfect vegan. And I think shaming others creates further division in an already divided world that fails to have meaningful conversations over divisive topics. But this isn't a view shared by everyone, with many vegan activists adopting a zero-tolerance style approach, the hardline approach where you're either vegan and part of the solution, or you're not vegan and part of the problem. An approach that has just never felt right to me. And while I completely understand the ethical argument behind a a zero-tolerance message, it just doesn't seem like the best way to promote healthy conversations and encourage behavior change. 
but I'm not an expert in the communication of animal exploitation. So to help us explore all of these curiosities of mine and, and potentially yours too, I asked Melanie Joy, psychologist and author of a, a brilliant book, Why We Love Dogs, Eat Pigs and Wear Cows, An Introduction to Carnism, to join me on the show for a deep dive into this very topic. While we often see veganism or vegetarianism as the dominant food-related ideology in our society, in this episode, you will learn about what is actually the most dominant food-related ideology, carnism. You will also learn about how to communicate the vegan message in an effective way that leaves non-vegans feeling good about themselves and hopefully inspired to make change. As I mentioned at the end, this is very much an open conversation, an introduction to this topic. And in fact, I find this area so interesting and, and have so many more questions that I am thinking of making it into a three or, or four part series with Melanie to, to return along with a very high profile vegan activist. And I'll share more on that as I piece it together. But for now, this is me and the incredibly intelligent Melanie Joy, a conversation that I hope inspires you, whether vegan or not, to think deeply about our food choices and how we talk about these choices with one another. Catch you on the other side. Melanie, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to be able to finally sit down with you. I'm a huge fan of your work from the numerous talks you've done to your book on the psychology of why we eat animals, why we love dogs, eat pigs and wear cows, which you recently republished as a new edition. This question of why we eat certain animals and, and why others we don't is absolutely fascinating. And you've done such an incredible job explaining this. So firstly, thank you for your service and congratulations on republishing this incredible book after 10 years since it originally hit the shelves. Yeah, well, thank you so much. And it's really, it's an honor to be talking to you. Um, I'm, I'm really excited and looking forward to this conversation today. Before we, we kind of jump into things, perhaps we, we preface this conversation with a little bit about how this all unfolded for you personally. You know, what inspired you to study psychology at Harvard, get involved in, in social justice movements and animal activism, and, and then ultimately, you know, write book, Why We Love Dogs, Eat Pigs, and, and Wear Cows in the first place. Yeah. Well, thank you for the question. And yeah, all of my books really stemmed from my own experience and I can trace it back for, for a very, very long time. But I'll start with, in my childhood, really, I think it was my, my relationship with my dog, Fritz, that really put me on the path that led me to write Why We Love Dogs and do the work that I do today. Like so many people um, in the United States and also elsewhere, I, I grew up with a dog um, who I, I loved like a family member. I certainly was a person who, you know, cared about animals and would never cause them to suffer, especially when that suffering was, you know, so intensive and so completely unnecessary. And like most people, I also grew up eating animals, um, a lot of animals. I was like the meat lover's pizza girl who used to go to Domino's Pizza and get four kinds of meat on my pizza and extra cheese. So really, it was 
for much of my life, I never thought about how strange it was that I could pet my dog with one hand, you know, while I ate a pork chop with the other, a pork chop that had once been an animal who was at least as intelligent and sensitive as my dog. What happened was that one day in 1989, when I was, uh, I was 23 years old, it's a long time ago, I ended up eating a contaminated hamburger with Campylobacter and I got wildly sick. I wound up hospitalized on intravenous antibiotics. And after that experience, I stopped eating meat. And it wasn't because of, in, you know, in my mind, any ethical reasons. Um, it was because, that, you know, like when you get wildly ill, you just don't want to eat the last thing that made you sick. So I became a vegetarian and shortly thereafter a vegan sort of by accident. And I was looking for information about my new diet. I was looking for, you know, what do I eat? What do I buy? How do I cook? And of course, this exploration led me to discover information about animal agriculture. And what I learned just shocked and horrified me. I, I couldn't believe the extent of the violence toward non-human animals. I couldn't believe what was happening to the, the environment. I was also learning about the impact on my own body, on my own health. But of course, it was 1989, so there wasn't as much information about the you know, human health implications of eating animals. So I was really shocked. Um, but what shocked me in some ways even more was that nobody I talked to about what I was discovering wanted to hear what I had to say. And these were like my my friends and my family members, they were people just like I had been, uh, that I was, they were rational and compassionate, but the response was always something like, don't tell me that you'll ruin my meal, you know, or they might even call me a crazy vegan hippie propagandist. And I then became very curious. And I asked myself, you know, how is it that rational, compassionate people can just Stop thinking and feeling when it comes to what could only be called a global atrocity. And that's really what led me to study psychology, the psychology of violence and nonviolence more broadly, which I wrote about in later years, and, and specifically to write my doctoral dissertation on the psychology of eating animals. Can you remember, you know, when you first were making those changes and having those conversations with your friends and family, how you were sort of framing the conversation then? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. As, as you know, in my, my later writing, it's about how do we communicate around this issue, veganism, you know, versus what I came to call carnism, and, and even more broadly, how do we communicate around any issues when we have a difference of opinion, particularly one that's really morally charged. And I remember I started out saying, oh, my God, you're not going to believe what I've learned you know, really just very naively and very innocently, simply trying to share the facts with them. Like, this is what's happening to the animals, you know, and this is what's happening to our environment. I, I can't believe this. Um, but the reaction was so defensive. It was like this, this wall would go up when I started trying to talk to them. And there was, and then of course, all of these stereotypes about me, you know, that they never held before in their minds started coming out. You're an extremist. And I would, but extremists participating in this global atrocity, you know, they would come up with all sorts of um, reasons and rationalizations and, and go through what I later realized were all sorts of mental gymnastics to basically invalidate my message. 
And of course, that made me amp up the volume and, you know, try to, I didn't have to exaggerate because the facts are bad enough in and of themselves, but I would highlight the worst of the worst, you know, and, and then the conversation, of course, became so heated that it was sort of like, we just don't talk about this anymore. This is the issue that nobody discusses in the family or in my circle of friends. That sort of uh, defense mechanism of, and, and mental gymnastics, you know, it's, it's not too dissimilar to what you can see in certain people when it comes to climate change or, or even nutrition as well. Is that a safety thing? Like what, why, why do, do humans have that sort of, I guess, natural impulse to deny something such as those? I don't know how much of this I would call a natural impulse. Um, it is certainly a way that we are deeply socialized to behave and think. So this was the question that I asked when I started my research. What is it? What is going on psychologically so that people who actually share these values of, of compassion and justice, you know, which is just caring and fairness, What's going on psychologically that they do not respond to information that would help them to do less harm in the world and in their relationship with me in that case, but rather to actually defend their right to oppress, which is really what they were doing without realizing it. And so, you know, the answer is obviously what we'll be discussing today. And I can sort of, um, you know, maybe start out this conversation by saying we do know that all of us need to maintain a positive self-concept. You know, we all need to feel like we're living a moral life. We want to feel good about who we are, even if we feel guilty for so some of the things that we do. And so when you have this cognitive dissonance is what it's called. This cognitive dissonance is the internal discomfort that we feel when our values, and in this case, we're talking about the core, the universal values of compassion and, and justice, caring and fairness, when our values and our behaviors are not aligned, when we act against our values. And so when we feel this cognitive dissonance, it's an uncomfortable feeling. And we have, there are basically three ways to mitigate this or offset the discomfort that's caused by this feeling. We can change our values to match our behaviors, meaning we can say to ourselves, okay, I'm really not a kind person. I'm not a very good person. And it is what it is. But of course, we don't do that. Most people, at least research has shown that most people want to and need to feel like we're living moral lives. We can change our behaviors to match our values. In this case, it would mean to stop eating animals, you know, or you talked about climate change to change our practices around, you know, our environmental practices, or we can change our perception of our behaviors so that they seem to match our values. And here is where we can see all of these mental gymnastics where we justify and we deny and we minimize. And perhaps most importantly, the system that we are born into or the systems that we are born into give us the tools to do just this. That kind of, I guess, brings me to what I thought can can sort of provide some structure for this conversation. There was a, a, a video campaign that you you guys uploaded on on Beyond Carnism on on social media a little while ago. I think it was about a three minute video and it covered everything from the sort of invincible ideology of Carnism to 
what what I thought was, and this was probably a little bit less obvious, but around effective communication, and there were some sort of keywords that you were using in there that I thought was a really clever way to frame this conversation, which, as you said before, can become quite a defensive topic, quite a triggering topic when when we're talking about morals. And and you you obviously be familiar with that that video. Given it was based on carnism, why don't we start with that? What is carnism? And then we can dive into some of that language used and the, and the school of thought behind the messaging in that video around vegan allies and being as vegan as possible. So it's a great question. I was talking, you know, when I when I describe this system that basically provides us with the tools to mitigate or manage this cognitive dissonance that we we experience. Um, this is the system that I came to call carnism. And this is really what my research when I was doing my doctoral research led me to identify. Carnism is the invisible belief system that conditions us to eat certain animals. It's uh, It's essentially the opposite of veganism. We tend to assume that only vegans and vegetarians follow a belief system when it comes to eating animals. But the only reason we learn to eat pigs but not dogs, for example, is because we do follow a belief system when it comes to eating animals. When eating animals is not a necessity for survival, which is true for many, not all, but many people in the world today, then it's a choice. And choices always stem from beliefs. We just don't recognize this choice because we've been born into this belief system called carnism. I think a a good way to understand what I'm talking about on a more experiential level is to imagine that you're um, at a dinner party and you're eating a delicious beef stew and you ask your host for the recipe and she says, okay, well, the secret's in the meat. You need to use well-seasoned golden retriever. Now, chances are you you don't eat animals, but for somebody who does regularly eat meat, this person's experience would immediately change, right? What they just saw moments ago as food, they would now see as a dead animal. What they just saw or felt was delicious, they would now feel is disgusting. So the perceptions completely changes, even though nothing about the meat itself actually changes. And this is what carnism does. Carnism is structured in order that people who care about their impact on other individuals, including other animals, act against their values, act against their own interests and the interests of others without fully realizing what they're doing. So even more specifically, carnism, this system, teaches us to distort our perceptions when it comes to the meat, eggs, and dairy of those animals, we've learned to classify as edible. So when we see like hamburgers, we don't immediately see dead cows. We just see meat. We don't feel disgusted. We feel appetized. And therefore, we act accordingly. So can you, I guess, explain to me, I'm thinking here, and this is just very much off the cuff then, the key or the, the sort of answer to all of this very much seems to lie in getting people to think about cows and to think about pigs like they do dogs. And how is that achieved? Because I think that's, that's easier said than done because I know from my experience, you know, 
personally, I can sit down and talk to someone about, you know, where their, their meat comes from or their eggs come from and some of the practices that take place, but they just don't have the same connection or they don't believe that they have the same connection or care for those animals. Information alone is not enough. I mean, we need to raise awareness and it not simply awareness of the reality of what's happening to animals and what's happening to the environment or even what's happening to our own bodies when we consume these carnistic products, right? We need to raise awareness of carnism itself, which is the system that conditions us to disconnect intellectually or psychologically and emotionally from the truth of our experience, which is really what you're describing. In my book, I talk about this knowing without knowing, you know, on one level, we know that somebody has to die for our plates whenever we eat carnistic products, meat, eggs, or dairy. But on another level, we don't make the emotional connection with that knowing. and We don't even really make the psychological connection with that knowing. So raising awareness means helping people recognize the reality, the facts of animal agriculture and its consequences, and ideally emotionally connect with that reality. But it also means helping people recognize carnism, because once you see carnism for what it is, and more specifically, once you recognize what I refer to as this as carnistic defenses or defense mechanisms, which I'll explain in just a moment, these defenses lose a lot of their power over you. So let me talk about, just explain what these defense mechanisms are for for listeners who are not familiar with them. Carnism is a, first of all, it's it's a special kind of system. It's dominant. What that means is that it is so widespread that it is seen, its tenets, its teachings are seen as a given rather than a choice, right? Eating animals is just the way things are. It's not a choice. It's just the way things are. We don't even learn to question it. Mm, Which you hear a lot. Which you hear a lot, right? And when a system is dominant, that means that its teachings, its tenets are, you know, and the attitudes that go along with it are basically woven through the entire structure of society. They shape norms, laws, beliefs, behaviors, etc. What we call institutionalized, they're embraced and maintained by all of the major social institutions. So, you know, nutrition and medicine and business and, you know, religion. And we learn to believe in carnism, you know, through all of these major institutions. And we therefore don't recognize the system for what it is. So, for example, when we study nutrition, we are generally studying carnistic nutrition, but we don't see carnistic bias because it's so entrenched. Now, carnism is also a a violent system or a system of oppression. As I said earlier, it runs counter to core human values. And so most people would never willingly participate in the global atrocity that is carnism if they really understood it for what it is. And so, therefore, systems like carnism, these oppressive systems, need to use psychological defense mechanisms. Basically, these mechanisms distort our perceptions so that we disconnect from our natural empathy for others, other non-human animals in this case. We disconnect from the truth of our own emotional experience and we act accordingly. So I'll give you an example of what these look like. 
One defense um, is abstraction. We learn to see farmed animals as abstractions, as lacking any individuality or personality of their own. So we learn to believe, for example, that a, a pig is a pig and all pigs are the same. Of course, it's much easier to participate in violence toward pigs if we don't recognize that like dogs, like all individual beings, they have they have lives and personalities and sentience and intelligence and so on and so forth. Another example is um, justification. You know, the way that we learn to justify eating animals is by learning to believe that the myths, this mythology of eating animals are the facts of eating animals. We learn to believe in what I call the three ends of justification. Eating animals is normal, natural, and necessary. And we, we hear this over and over and over again. So we just accept this as fact rather than recognizing that it's nothing more than a set of widely held opinions. And of course, these three ends have been used to justify violent practices throughout history from, you know, male dominance to heterosexual supremacy. So all of these defense systems are stopping the individual from ascertaining if their behavior is aligned with their beliefs and their morals? Yes, they are distancing mechanisms. You know, they distance us from the emotions, most notably our empathy that would stop us, you know, that would prevent us from participating in violence toward others. Yeah. So, so in that way, I mean, most of society is participating without fully comprehending what they're opting into. Exactly, exactly. And this is why awareness is so critical. And, you know, carnism, it, it conditions us to be defensive against any information that would actually help us get outside the carnistic box. We don't even realize we're in. And this is really, this is really the challenge. Um, when a system is dominant, like carni carnism, when it's so widespread, it becomes internalized. What that means is that when we are born into such a dominant system as carnism, we learn to look at the world through the lens of carnism. We internalize its way of thinking, its teachings, and its defenses. You know, carnism needs to, it, it makes us automatically feel defensive against anyone or anything that would free us from the carnistic box. And this is what makes conversations about veganism and about carnism so tricky. And you might have experienced this yourself. You know, you'd sometimes you just say, I'm vegan. And all of a sudden, this wall goes up. Or all of a sudden, you might start hearing from somebody who never even heard the word veganism before. You might start hearing all the reasons you're wrong about your own lifestyle and, and ideology, right? There are so many ways that that um, people learn to defend against veganism. But to your point, yes, the system conditions otherwise, you know, people who are generally conscientious and well-intentioned and who would never willingly support such violence, it conditions them to defend the very thing that would deeply offend them if they were more aware. So I'm interested in in sort of, you know, we're, we're talking here about raising awareness. I'm interested in delving into sort of how how we can learn from what these defense systems are and then use that knowledge to sort of break them down and, and communicate 
more effectively. Something that a question that I that I have for you before we sort of move on from this is I quite often hear we're, we're talking about uh, you know a very very large atrocity here. And I quite often hear activists sort of comparing this, the, the consumption of animal-based foods to things like slavery or, or pedophilia or rape, uh, things that are illegal in, in our society, which understandably is often a or can be a very triggering comparison for, for people that are consuming animal products, that, that sort of direct comparison because it it is very challenging and, and probably creates a whole lot of immediate shame and their consumption of animal products is within the, the sort of their right within the current law. And I understand that the law is probably not a moral separator, but I'm interested, do you think these are, these are fair comparisons and, and helpful for creating healthy conversation? That is a really Great question and a huge question. Um, the answer is it depends. And it, it depends on what kind of comparisons you're making, and it depends on how you are making those comparisons. So as you rightly pointed out, some comparisons are not appropriate because they're so triggering and they're so offensive. So a great example would be when white vegans use examples of African slavery as a comparison. You know, fortunately, there's increasing awareness of why this comparison is so triggering for, for people and more and more people are, are doing this less. When we make comparisons, number one, we need to really ask ourselves whether these comparisons are going to be highlighting abuses and atrocities that other groups of individuals have experienced and therefore could be triggering to these other individuals and groups. And in this case, it is, um, in my opinion, it's, it's not respectful to make these comparisons. And I can use myself as an example, because in my earlier days of talking about the issue, I did actually sometimes compare slavery, different types of slavery with animal suffering. And I was rightly educated as to why that practice is problematic. Another comparison that's problematic is when we compare the experience of the victims of these different oppressive systems. You know, the experience of each set of victims will always be somewhat unique. So if you compare, you know, animals in factory farms with, for example, people who were in um, concentration camps during the, the Holocaust, that's obviously going to be triggering and offensive. All of that said, I think it's important to compare the systems themselves and more specifically the mentality. Because even though the experience of each set of victims will always be unique, the systems, carnism, patriarchy, racism, classism, and so on and so forth, these systems are structurally similar. And most important of all, the mentality that drives oppression is the same. Yeah, in that, you know, once upon a time, those were accepted or more accepted than they are today. And society has changed the way that they look on them. 
Yes. And, and actually, you just reminded me, I forgot to speak to one other point you raised, which is when some vegans compare practices, not systems, but, but practices, the practice of eating animals to the practice of, for example, you know, or I would say not even eating animals, but the practice of um, dairy production, for example, where you have to use forced insemination um, in order to carry out dairy production. They compare that to, to the rape of human women. That is very problematic because when we're looking at the mentality, right, the mentality of somebody who eats animals today is quite different than the mentality of somebody who would justify raping people today. When a practice is, um, you know, normalized and widespread, I'm not saying that it's not problematic or it's not violent. It obviously is. However, that requires a very different psychology than the psychology required to engage in violence when that form of violence is not a widespread social norm. Okay, so let's delve a little bit deeper into this raising awareness piece and sort of honing in on, on what the most effective practices are in, in terms of breaking down some of those defense systems and, and having people realize that their consumption of animal products is actually an option. From, the, I guess, a, a top line, I'm interested, you've been in this space for a long time. How well do you think the, the sort of vegan community as a whole is doing at communicating this, this message? Yeah, I don't know that I can answer that with any specificity, to be honest. Um, I can say that vegans in general have um, understandably struggle tremendously in order to communicate about this issue effectively. That is in part because people, you know, vegans are people and people tend to struggle in order to communicate effectively. I've said this many times and I'll say it again. I'm always like struck by the fact that most of us have no choice but to learn complicated geometry that we'll probably never need to use. And yet we don't get a single lesson on how to relate helpfully or communicate effectively people, you know? And so, um, it's very difficult for people to communicate effectively in general because we haven't learned how to do so. And then when you have, um, you know, you look at vegans and they're communicating, we're communicating about an issue that is morally charged that we feel so strongly about. You know, once you wake up to the reality of what's happening in the world, you can feel this incredible sense of urgency, this moral outrage, you know, grief, uh, all of these emotions that are totally understandable and legitimate and want to do everything in your power to stop the bloodshed. And on top of it, you haven't been empowered with the tools to communicate effectively. So, and on top of that, the entire system, you know, society is structured basically to block the vegan message. Most vegans just like most people would do well to learn the principles and tools of effective communication and healthy relating in order to increase the chances that their message will be heard as they intend it to be. And that is a huge part of the focus of my work and Beyond Carnism's work, which is to empower vegans and people who are working toward any kind of positive social change with the tools they need to do so as effectively as possible. So let's let's go through, I guess, some you know, in in a summary format, some of those those tools, and and I'll I'll sort of speak back to that video that I talked about earlier, the three minute video. Some of the language in there, you know, it really resonated with me. You know, my message, whilst I've always 
maintain that I follow a vegan diet and, and I think the vegan lifestyle is incredible and so empowering. My nutrition advice has, has very much been pushing people along the spectrum just to consume less animal products, more plants, and to be as plant exclusive as possible for that person. And, and overall, that message has been received very well. But, you know, from time to time, I will come across someone who doesn't necessarily see eye to eye with, with that approach. You know, and I understand we, going back to what you just said then, someone who has seen firsthand what's happening at the vigils and the slaughterhouses and is consuming that information every single day, it can be very traumatizing and, and they can take this this sort of approach, whether it's you're, you're vegan and you're, you're the part of the solution or you're not vegan and you're part of the problem. And, and in your video, you emphasized that sort of catchphrase of being as vegan as possible. Talk, can you sort of talk me through the rationale for that? Many people are simply not ready or able to become fully vegan even though they might believe in the principles of veganism and they believe that veganism makes sense for them. Um, we assume many people who are promoting veganism or advocating veganism are those people who became vegan rel relatively quickly, you know, from one day to the next um, and assume, well, because this is the way I changed, I made the connection. This is the way everybody should change. And if people don't change like that, it means they don't care. But human psychology is much more messy and complicated than that. And for any number of reasons, many people feel that they cannot become fully vegan right away. And so I do speak to this issue that vegans often understandably, yet in my opinion, mistakenly assume that either you're vegan and you're part of the solution or you're not vegan and you're part of the problem. And what this does is prevent like 99% of the global population from contributing to a cause that needs all the help it can get. So I approach this or we approach this at Beyond Carnism by encouraging people to do two things. One is to become vegan allies. You know, a vegan ally is a supporter of veganism as a belief system, as a practice, and of vegans, the people who carry out this practice, even though they're not fully vegan themselves. And some of the people in my own life, in my own experience, who have done the most to help the cause are not people who simply don't eat animals for their entire lifetime. They are people like journalists or interviewers, um, for example, who write up an interview or publish an interview with me that reaches perhaps hundreds of thousands, even millions of people raising awareness of this issue. Some of the people who donate to my organization that's entirely dependent on donations, they're not vegan, but they really believe in and want to help make a vegan world. So they're the reason that we can do the work that we're doing. So we encourage people to be vegan allies and to use this phrase directly and openly and I have said many times, uh, you know, I, I have many memories of people, journalists hugging me saying, thank you for letting me be a vegan ally and really feeling a sense of ownership in the transformation of carnism. Social movements like, you know, the vegan movement, they don't succeed just because of the core group of inner activists. They, they succeed because enough of the public supports the cause to tip the scales of power. And a, a part of being a vegan ally is a commitment to being as vegan as possible, right? You can say, 
when we advocate, when I advocate, I never say go vegan or why don't you become vegan? Because as the activist Henry Spira said, if you go into a negotiation asking for all or nothing, you're probably going to end up with nothing. If we ask people to be as vegan as possible, what we're really doing is, I mean, number one, it's the only respectful thing you can ask from somebody. You're allowing them to be the expert on their own choices, on their own ideology. Like nobody, how could I know what's possible for somebody else? It's also the only rational ask because nobody can be more vegan than what's possible for them. And frankly, if everyone in the world were truly as vegan as possible, the world would become vegan fairly quickly. And so people are much less defensive when you say, why don't you just try to be as vegan as possible? What are they going to say? No, I'm not going to be as vegan as possible. So it, it really opens up the conversation. Hey friends, I hope you're enjoying this episode. It's Simon here. Just a quick intermission to remind you that my book, The Proof is in the Plants, is now available. In this book, I cover common myths about plant-based diets, evidence showing the potential health benefits that are up for grabs, the positive impact eating plant foods has on the planet, and much more. To order your copy, head to plantproof.com forward slash book. Plantproof.com forward slash book. Okay, let's get back into it. Something that that has come up when I've been in discussion and, you know, I'm the first person to put my hand up that this sort of ethical aspect of veganism is whilst, you know, it's kind of in my wheelhouse, it's certainly not the main part of what I do and that's why I'm sitting down with you today. But something that has come up in, in conversation around exactly this point is, well, Simon, advocating for people to be as vegan as possible is is akin to telling people to just reduce their their racism and if they're racist three days a week then it's acceptable and that's the kind of example that will will come back what would you how would you sort of respond to that the first thing that i want to say is that i i do believe you were talking about how you don't always you know talk about the ethical aspect of veganism but if you're talking about eating plant-based um in my opinion that is also an ethical aspect of veganism because it's ethics toward yourself I don't really differentiate in my mind that, you know, ethical veganism means practicing an ethical lifestyle toward non-human beings. It's also practicing ethics toward your own body. No, I agree. I, I, I mean, I'm not necessarily an expert in terms of communicating the animal exploitation side of veganism. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and it's, it's another really great question that you raise. Um, you know, and I've, I've heard this before too, you know, so where some vegans say when you talk about like meat free Mondays, they say, Oh, like rape free Thursdays or something. Um, you know, that you're, you're somehow not asking for enough. And I understand where that perspective comes from, you know, where again, vegans who are, you know, often traumatized and, you know, feel the sense of urgency say, like, what are you talking about? Once you've made the connection and you feel like viscerally and so emotionally, the reality that what's happening to non-human animals is just is is completely um, you identify the violence and the exploitation inherent in that any ask that's not go vegan now feels like uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Not a compromise, but it feels like a concession. You know, it feels like you're giving up, you're giving in. 
But again, it's this, this is what I would describe as ideology devoid of psychology. Like, okay, we have an ideological perspective. We recognize that, you know, veganism is ideologically, it's morally consistent, but human psychology is messy and it's complicated. And it's really important for us to communicate in a way that increases the chances that people will make the kinds of changes we need them to make if we hope to really make a difference for farmed animals and beyond. People do not respond. Um, most people, number one, transition slowly. And, you know, asking somebody to stop eating animals is not simply asking for a change of behavior. It's asking for a change of perspective, a change, a shift of consciousness, a change of lifestyle. Potentially, it's asking for them to compromise um, important relationships in their lives. Relationships do not have to end because one person becomes vegan. When people know how to uh, relate effectively, but very often they do end up ending. And so we also need to appreciate this. I believe that when we say, I'm trying to remember the exact phrase that you used, but that, you know, you're kind of giving people permission. I think you said giving people permission to be racist several days a week. If you ask them not to be racist one day a week or something, the same thing with giving people permission to exploit. There's a profound arrogance in assuming that anybody needs our permission to live their lives the way that they choose to. We are not in a position to give people moral permission to do something or not. That stance is, um, it's arrogant and it's, it's also misinformed. If we want to change people's behaviors whereby, you know, they no longer actually have permission to do something, then that's called legislate, legislating. That's what legislation is for. But when it comes to advocacy and communicating in a way to encourage people to change their behaviors, if we approach people as the adult people, as though they need our permission to do something or not, if we approach adult people and present them with an all or nothing option, we are very likely going to reduce the chances that those people are receptive to the message that we need them to hear. So at a practical level, I guess, if you're very, very passionate about ending this atrocity that's that's taking place and and you're finding that perhaps in your communication you are you have been communicating this sort of all or or nothing type approach you know what what does this look like what does it look like in terms of a conversation with someone how to effectively communicate what you want to without inducing shame and 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 guilt and things like that yeah, well, for one, I would say that the, that asking people to become as vegan as possible or as plant-based as pro- possible is, in my opinion, a very simple practical solution because we don't worry about talking about reduction versus non-reduction. Nobody can be more vegan than what's possible for them. So this ask kind of solves multiple problems at once, I think, where we can be, vegans can be true to the vegan goal and at the same time, ask something in a way that reduces the chances that people will be defensive against it on, you know, other practical levels, right? How do we, how do we communicate in a way that increases the chances our message will be heard the way we intend it to be? I'll share a couple of, of tips. Um, and probably the most important principle for people to keep in mind is, uh, to value the process more than the content of a communication. Now, let me explain what this means and unpack this a little bit. All communication has these two parts. The content is what we are communicating about. 
So here, the content of our communication is communication, right? The content is constantly changing. We could be communicating about whether to stay home or go out on a Saturday night, or we could be communicating about whether, you know, to have carnistic products in the refrigerator or not. So the content is what we're communicating about. The process is how we are communicating. And the process matters more. Most people, especially when it comes to issues around differences, you know, differences in ideology in particular, overfocus on the content and underfocus on the process. So just to give you an idea of the importance of the process, think about a conversation you had maybe like a month ago, maybe six months ago, or think about a conversation you had maybe a year ago at a party. Chances are you might have entirely forgotten the content. You don't even know what you talked about, but you probably still remember how you felt in that conversation. So the process determines how you feel. When our process is healthy, we can talk about anything without arguing. And when our process is not healthy, we can't talk about anything without arguing. You probably know people who really actually agree on just about everything or everything, and yet they still find ways to argue with each other. A healthy process has as its goal or its objective not to be right, which means to make the other person wrong, not to win, which means to make the other person lose. It is mutual understanding. It's connection. When our process is healthy, our goal is to have the other person understand what we're thinking and what we're feeling and perhaps what we need and to understand what they're thinking and what they're feeling right? That's it. That's why we communicate in the first place. The only reason we communicate is because we're not telepathic. So when your process is healthy and it reflects this goal, that means you communicate with this goal in mind and with an openness to what the other person is going, is trying to say. So it's, it's important, you know, when we're talking about vegan, non-vegan, you know, interactions or communications, we always think about content. Who's going to like make the best case for why they're right. But underneath these differences, whenever you're communicating with somebody, whenever you're relating to somebody, let me back up. Communication is a form of relating. That's all it is. It's the primary way that we relate is through our communication. So everything I'm talking about here, it applies to relating in general, nonverbal communication as well. So underneath our differences in ideas or whatever it may be is a relationship between people. And that's where our focus needs to be. So when you're talking about veganism, you know, let's bring it to the specific of veganism and you're communicating, you want to share your ideas about veganism, your experience with veganism. Number one, do not make your goal to convert the other person because you can't, you can't force people to change. You can make your goal to share what you know to be true for yourself. And you can approach the conversation ideally through your own story. You know, whoever, it doesn't matter who I'm talking to, whether I'm on, you know, like live TV or standing on a stage in front of an audience of non-vegans or talking to my family and friends, I always talk about veganism through my own story. So if somebody says to you, why are you vegan, right? Very often vegans respond by listing all the reasons the other person should be vegan. 
oh, I'm vegan because of the atrocity of the animals. What's happening? The United Nations says that, you know, animal agriculture is the number one cause of, you know, all sorts of environmental problems, so on and so forth. Which quickly becomes a, a lecture. Totally. It quickly becomes a lecture and it turns into a debate. It becomes about whose ideas are right. Instead, share your story. So if somebody says to you, why are you vegan or are you vegan? For example, you know, if somebody says to me, are you vegan? First of all, I'll say, well, you know what? I am today, but for much of my life, I wasn't. Uh, my colleague Tobias Lehner talks about what he calls vegan amnesia. It's like people become vegan and they forget that they were ever not vegan. It's like we all just dropped out of a tree vegan. But it's important to remember your own carnism because that that helps you connect with the people that you're talking with. They're not fundamentally different from you. So if somebody says to me, you know, are you vegan? I will say I am today, but for much of my life, I wasn't. So they know I get them. We vegans were bilingual. They're people we're communicating with often are not. And then I'll say, you know, I actually became vegan. Um, you know, interestingly, I grew up with a dog who I loved, like I shared my story with you earlier today. And then I learned about animal agriculture and I was really shocked and I was horrified. And, and, and this is what I learned. Keep it short, of course. You know, as you point out, people can easily go into a lecture. Vegans have the tendency and, and people in general who feel strongly about an issue have the tendency to over-inform because we kind of want people to leave the conversation without having any justification left. Oh, really? You love baking gluten-free muffins? Great. Tapioca powder can help instead of eggs. And, you know, type 2 diabetes, we've got that covered. Just tell you, share your story. Keep it short. Here's what I learned. And I also recommend sharing information that you know, your own experience of car these carnistic defenses. So when I'm talking about my veganism, I'll say, you know, I, I just didn't, I never made the connection, you know, when I was, when I was the meat lover's pizza girl, you know, I never thought about the meat on my pizza, you know, or the meat on my plate as, as like once was an animal. I just didn't make that connection. So I talk about my own psychology a little bit and keep it short. And then if people want more information, it's a good idea to have like a handout to give them or a website to send them to, but there's, they can find it. Mm. Yeah. I like that. I mean, when you're talking from your own perspective, you have removed the judgment and that judgment from my experience tends to be what puts up the barriers and then the conversation quickly can escalate. And this, again, as you said before, this is not just about veganism and non-veganism. This goes for all, every, all topics in life and, and, and all of the conversations we have with someone who has a different opinion on something. I think that's, that's really, really helpful. Just thinking again, like in a, in a practical sense, I guess sometimes in a setting, it may be difficult to, to pull in the personal perspective. For example, and you may well be able to, but let's say you're out with, with friends and perhaps you've already shared your personal perspective and, and your friends are, are out with you and they, they tell you how they have uh, reduced their consumption of animal products and now they have, they're only buying uh, organic grass-fed uh, sort of free-range red meat and, 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 and free-range eggs and to them that is, is a, a step in the right direction and, and they're sort of in a spot that they are, are comfortable in and perhaps you sitting there are thinking well their behavior is still not completely aligned with 
their morals that they they might be voicing about caring for for animals and perhaps they don't want to sort of completely commit to changing that behavior as a friend as someone in that conversation how do you approach that i mean that's yeah another another really important question um and to your point about shame earlier uh, you're absolutely right and anything that we can do to not shame is a step, a huge step in the right direction. We can come back to that a little bit later because it's such a fundamental piece of, of what we're talking about here. You know, first of all, I, th- there's this great Buddhist saying that I, I quote a lot because I love it so much. And it says, we all have within us the seeds of greed, hatred, and desire. And we also have within us the seeds of love, compassion, and empathy. And our job is just to water the right seeds in ourselves and in others. So when people share information about how they've practiced compassion, responding to that by feeding the compassion, by watering their seeds of compassion is great. So if, you know, if a former vegan, for example, says, I used to be vegan, we can respond by saying, oh my God, well, why did you stop being vegan? Or we can say, oh, really? What encouraged you to be vegan in the first place? You know, so we bring them back to that compassion. When somebody says, to you, your friends say, oh, by the way, I'm only eating organic or, or, or humane, whatever they call it, you know, meat, eggs and dairy. You can say, great. What inspired you to want to make that change? Because they're obviously, they're paying more money. They're putting forth more effort. So I would be curious about what motivated them to go down that path. And encourage them and, and be grateful for that and say to them, oh, yeah, that makes total sense. Um, and and you can share with them as well how what you've learned, again, bring it back to your story. You know, I know for me, for example, many years ago when this whole idea of what I now call compassionate carnism was first introduced, I was thinking like, wow, even the animal agribusinesses, they're trying to do better. You know, they're trying to do right by the animals. Maybe they are. Um, Certainly with the level of financial investment, um, there's a very good chance. You know, I should say maybe some people within these industries are. Um, But the industries themselves are fundamentally exploitive. And so you can do exactly the same thing that I said before. Share your own story, you know, of, yeah, when I first learned about that, I totally get it. I was like, oh, maybe this is a shift in the right direction. Um, And then I realized and learned that these industry, this industry is actually because of people like you and me who wanted to reduce our support of animal exploitation. This was a reaction to get us to try to continue to support it without realizing what we're doing. And so, for example, like, you know, one of the things I think about myself is like, most people, most of us would consider it cruel to slaughter a, a happy, healthy golden retriever just because people like the way her thighs taste. And when the exact same thing is done to individuals of other species, the animal agribusinesses want us to call that humane. I mean, if you think about it, it's really bizarre. And it's actually even worse in some ways because that animal had a life, um, you know, she wanted to continue living and probably friends who now miss her. So you can share your own story and your own perspective and highlight the absurdity of this practice by helping people step outside of the carnistic box. Because when you substitute another species, the absurdity, the irrationality of, you know, carnism becomes much more apparent. Yeah, I guess from a practical sense in, in in sort of reality, there can be a fine line between 
sharing that information and sort of reading the 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 mood and and who you're speaking with to determine if it's going to cross that line and become shameful you know but i i really love what you're saying there about someone who is sharing with you improvements that they've made to really hone in and focus on those and to to water those seeds as you say rather than just zooming into what maybe at this moment they're not doing as well as you like. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you have to tailor every conversation to the mood and the appropriateness of the conversation. I I think that number one, placing the onus of responsibility on industry can make a big difference in terms of offsetting shame. Like, yeah, you want to do better. Like, that's great. And you can ask them if you they want to hear what you've learned as well. And so, you know, and really kind of like taking the pulse, taking the temperature of the conversation as you move forward. Avoiding shaming is to a large degree, it, it's an internal process, not simply how you communicate, but it's how you feel before you even communicate. Because you can communicate in all of the quote unquote right ways. But if you have an attitude of moral superiority when you're communicating, chances are that's going to seep out and the other person is going to pick up on it. So you raised this issue of shame earlier, and I'd like to speak to it because it's really so fundamental to everything else that we're talking about. And in my, um, I write about shame and talk about shame a lot in my work around um, healthy relationships and communication because non-shaming is so foundational to relating which includes communicating in a way that's healthy and productive. And I I think it's useful to start out and just differentiate shame from guilt because a lot of people tend to conflate these two concepts and, and they're not the same, even though we tend to use them interchangeably. Guilt is how we feel about a behavior. We feel guilty when we think I did something bad. Guilt is an important emotion for us to feel because it helps us course correct and change problematic behaviors. People who don't feel guilt, you know, obviously it's problematic when people don't feel guilt. So guilt is how we feel about a behavior. And shame is how we feel about ourselves. So we feel guilty when we think I did something bad. We feel ashamed when we think I am bad. More specifically, shame is the feeling of being less than. And even more specifically, shame is the feeling of being less worthy than. When we feel shame, we feel that our inherent or our intrinsic worth is not equal to the worth of others on the planet, that we are somehow fundamentally less than, less worthy, and less worthy of being treated with respect. Shame is a very problematic emotion. It's an illusion, first of all. I mean, nobody has more inherent worth than anybody else. We just perceive ourselves as more or less than. It exists only in comparison. We only feel ashamed when we feel that we are, you can't be less than if there's not somebody who's better than. And you can feel shame even when you do this to yourself internally, right? We can, when we compare ourselves to an idealized version of ourselves, I feel ashamed of myself because I'm not how I think I should be. For example, shame is a extremely demotivating emotion. When we feel shame, that means we feel a harm to our dignity. You know, our dignity is our sense of inherent worth. We are worthy of being treated with with respect, essentially, or being alive on this planet the way others are. Most people carry around a tremendous amount of shame. 
in their lives. We've been born into a very shaming world. We've been born into a profoundly relationally dysfunctional world. Relational dysfunction, a dysfunction in the way we relate to each other as individuals and as social groups and to ourselves, it is so widespread. I, I say that we've, we're still living in the relational dark ages, the way that we treat others and ourselves. And so most of us have a lot of shame because we've been harmed. Our dignity has been harmed. We've been talked down to. We've learned, we've learned to judge ourselves and to judge others harshly and relentlessly. And at the same time, most of us also try to hide our shame, you know, from others and also from ourselves. We feel ashamed of feeling ashamed often. So we assume that others don't carry around the shame that they do. And most of us are understandably very defensive against being shamed. I mean, just think about your own experience. If you're talking to somebody and you can sense that they're going to say something that communicates that you're um, an immoral person or that you are somehow inferior or less than, you're not smart enough, you're not good enough, you are probably going to withdraw or attack in self-defense. You are probably not going to be receptive to what they have to share with you, especially when what they have to share with you are ways for you to behave more ethically or more morally. So shame demotivates. And many advocates, vegan advocates, and advocates for other social causes, um, use shame as a motivator, thinking that if I point out how this person is bad or wrong, or their behaviors are bad or wrong, it's going to motivate them to change. Some people say, well, I was ashamed and I changed. I would suggest that some people change in spite of their shame, but not because of it. Hey friends, me again. Quick note to let you know, I have a brand new, completely complimentary two-week plant-based meal plan on my website. Inside contains delicious breakfast, lunch, dinner, and snack recipes, along with a complete breakdown of the nutritional information for each. Whether you're looking to add one plant-based meal to your weekly regime or go full plant, I'm sure you will find this resource helpful. You can get your copy today at plantproof.com forward slash meal plan. That's plantproof.com forward slash meal plan. Okay, let's get back into it. All of this goes back to what you said earlier as well about when you think of conversations you had from six months or a year ago, how did you feel in that conversation? And, you know, if, if you're feeling shame, you're, you're, you're definitely not going to be remembering that conversation and interaction as a, as a fond one. Totally. And on top of this, on top of this, studies have shown that people are defensive against threats of harm to their dignity. You know, when, when you shame somebody, what you're doing is harming their dignity, communicating that they're less worthy. And when people are in a, a state of defensiveness, what this means psychologically and physiologically is that they actually have less access to their rational faculties. They're thinking less rationally and they're less connected empathically. They're less they're less connected to their empathy. You know, it's like, think about a drowning person. You're not going to be talking. They're not going to want to be talking to you about politics. All they want to do is grab onto something that floats. So when a person feels shame or the threat of shame, they're less likely to be thinking about anything sophisticated. They're just trying to think about how do I reduce harm to my dignity in this moment? Now, 
when, you know, I, I started out talking about how shame starts, it starts here. It starts in our attitude of shaming others. We want to communicate in a non-shaming way. The flip side of shame is contempt. So shame is the feeling of being less than. When we feel contempt, that's an indication that we have placed ourselves in a position of superiority, in particular, uh, a position of moral superiority. So contempt is a, a red flag, you know, that you, you were talking, Simon, earlier about, you know, communicating in a way that's non-shaming. One thing we can do is ask ourselves when we're communicating, do I feel contempt? Do I feel like I'm in a position of moral superiority? Because I said earlier that, that shame, it's a very real emotion, but the emotion stems from believing in an illusion. And the illusion is that there is some hierarchy of moral worth, that some individuals or some groups are more morally worthy, you know, worthy of respect, have more intrinsic worth than others. Contempt is the same. It's just the flip side. It's, it's also the emotion is real, but it stems from an illusion and this illusion that somehow I am morally superior to you. I've talked about this a lot with vegans. And um, one of the questions I get from vegans is often, well, what do we do if we actually know that we're morally superior? It is morally superior to not eat animals. And to this, I would say, you know, what I'm talking about here, number one is not, I, I would avoid the term superior and inferior when we're actually talking about this issue and, and trying to cultivate change. And these terms don't serve us except to highlight the problematic feelings and attitudes that they engender. How do you decide whether somebody is morally better than somebody else? All of us, every human being, you know, each of us is simply the product of the hard wiring and the biology that we've been born with and every single experience that we have had throughout our lives. We can never be anything more nor less than this. And so, you know, we have vegans, often white vegans, who are saying, look at how great I am because I'm not eating animals. I'm so much more ethical than you without recognizing the tremendous amounts of privilege that have put them in a position where not only can they make their food choices freely, but they can actually access compassion for animals. You know, I say, and I, I believe this very strongly, that to, to feel compassion is a privilege we should be so grateful for. I mean, just think about one bad day that you've had. Think about that one day where, like, let's say you're, you're traveling and you're sitting in the days when we used to fly and you're sitting in economy and you've got your knees up under your chin and people are screaming around you and your flight is delayed and everything is going wrong. Think about how hard it is for you to be the kind of person you know you can be and that you want to be and that you feel good about after one bad day. We, we lose access to our compassion when we undergo these various stressors and harms, affronts to our dignity. So when we are in a position to access and act on our compassion, and then to bring these ideas of compassion out to others and to the world, we have tremendous privilege to be able to do that. And we should feel, in my opinion, a tremendous amount of gratitude rather than contempt for people who are not doing it. Yeah, I'm glad that you brought up the topic of superiority. I think it's it's important. You know, sometimes I am left 
wondering when I see certain debates, and I call them debates because they usually end up in an argument and who's right or who's wrong as you spoke to before, but when when it becomes this that situation of you're the problem um, eating animal products or you're the solution being the vegan, sometimes I'm I'm left wondering if it's about the animals and it's about the greater good of the number of animals that are that are being harmed or less harmed, or is it that superiority thing? Is it that humans, certain humans, where we feel better about ourselves? And in assuming superiority or a superiority role in society helps us with that. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. You actually put it very well. I mean, we can't really know what motivates somebody else to do what they do because we're not inside them. We don't know their reality. But um, we can certainly know. I wrote about this in my book, Powerarchy, that we are one of the ways that we become conditioned by this relationally dysfunctional world that we've been born into is by being taught to believe that the way we derive our own sense of worth, our own sense of personal power is from having more than another. We've learned this. You just turn on the TV or open up Facebook. You don't even have to go that far. Watch your own parents and their parents. Like The way that we've learned to enhance our own sense of worth as beings is by comparing ourselves to others and feeling better about ourselves based on how we measure up. And this feeds this, you know, tendency to shame others as a way to boost ourselves up. It feeds our tendency to feel contempt and to shame others. And then, of course, you know, the cycle perpetuates itself because we feel shame and then we counter shame as a way to boost ourselves up and shame others. I mean, these behavior studies have shown that these types of behaviors, non I call them non-relational behaviors because they harm relationships, including our relationships with ourselves. You know, these kinds of non-relationships are uh, non-relational behaviors are, um, they're contagious. They tend to spread themselves. I mean, the good news is that relational behaviors are also contagious. You know, the more we engage in in relational behaviors, which are behaviors that I define as those which reflect integrity, meaning they reflect this practice of compassion and justice toward others and ourselves, you know, reflect integrity and honor dignity. The more we engage in those, the more we feed the pool of relationality, as it were. Yeah, so you're you're absolutely right. And I think it's important to, you know, recognize, as you pointed out earlier, that um, many vegans and, you know, people who, again, in beyond veganism, people who are working to end other types of atrocities, not just the atrocity of carnism, are traumatized, you know, often have become traumatized by by what they have seen, what they have witnessed. An atrocity is essentially a mass traumatic event. Carnism is a tra- an atrocity. It's a mass traumatic event. You know, more farmed animals are slaughtered in a single day than the total number of people killed in all wars throughout history. When you open your eyes to the reality of this atrocity, when you see the graphic images of what's happening every second of every day, it is virtually impossible not to have some degree of traumatization from that. And trauma affects the psyche in a variety of ways. And the more traumatized we become, this is kind of an irony, for for many people, the more traumatized they become, the more they 
feed on traumatic material. You know, so you have vegans, for example, who have witnessed this traumatic material who can't stop themselves from watching over and over again, almost compulsively, or who feel obligated to witness because they feel like if they stop feeling, you know, traumatized, they're going to stop caring. If they stop caring, they'll stop being part of the solution. So I could go on about this for an entire podcast, but I'll I'll pull it back a little bit um, and say, when we become traumatized, we can start developing what I call a trauma narrative. We What this means is we start seeing the world as though it's one giant traumatic event with only three roles to be played. Like in a trauma, there are three roles to be played. You can either be a victim of the trauma, you can be a perpetrator of it, or you can be a hero. Some people say, well, what about a witness? A witness takes one of these two roles. They're either you know, a hero, they're helping to offset it, or they're a victim of it. But anyway, and we start, as we become increasingly traumatized, we start placing everyone, including ourselves, into one of these three roles and losing our capacity for nuance. So you're either with us or you're against us. You're either, you know, the enemy or the freedom fighter. You're good or you're bad. You're right or you're wrong. If you're not a perfect vegan, if you're not 100% vegan 100% of the time, well, then you're not a hero. And then you must be a perpetrator because you're not one of the animals hanging in a slaughterhouse. So this kind of thinking leads to a toxic moral perfectionism. It's a toxic moral perfectionism that plagues the vegan movement. It plagues many movements. Um, it, it plagues the world in many ways. And it's really important for us to recognize it for what it is so that we decrease our own levels of traumatization by witnessing less and taking care of ourselves. The work you're doing is, is incredible in, in helping people that have large platforms who, as you said earlier, you know, are very, very passionate about the cause, but just don't have the tools. They weren't, we're not born with this information. This, this information that you're sharing today is decades of research into the, the psychology and the way our brains work. So I think it's great that you're, you're bringing this kind of knowledge to the activists to then be able to go out and, and use you know, we're, we're talking, I guess we've kind of zoomed in a little bit here and now I'm thinking big picture, you know, if we, if we, if we zoom back out and again here, I, I'll, I'll mention slavery, talking more about the system, not about those affected by it. And if we, if we look at, at slavery or any other sort of historical practice or practices that are potentially sort of analogous to animal exploitation as a system, have you looked into any of those and seen sort of what can we learn from those in terms of what needs to take place for this system of, of animal exploitation to go from being just the, the way life is to something that society, you know, as a majority rejects as, as being a necessary practice? Yeah, thank you. First of all, thank you for your kind words about my work and our work at Beyond Carnism. I appreciate that very much. 
I mean, the the answer to your question is it's it's big. I mean, there are many things that um, we we can certainly learn from history, from from various historical practices that have since been, um, you know, have since ended or, you know, historical problems or or other isms like patriarchy slash sexism that have been changing, still have a long way to go, but certainly have changed quite a bit. Um, I think there are a few. relevant points to make if we're talking about, okay, so what do we do? I think what you're asking is like, what do we, what do we do to change this system of carnism as quickly as possible? One thing is um, that, you know, when a, when a behavior becomes a choice, it takes on an ethical dimension it didn't have in quite the same way before. You know, I talked earlier about the three ends of justification that we all learn eating animals is normal, natural, and necessary. Necessary is probably the strongest justification. And this argument that a practice is necessary, you know, for the survival of the species or the nation or the race, you know, or whatever, you know, has been the foundation on which many, many atrocities have stood. So once people recognize that something is a practice is not necessary, it becomes increasingly difficult to justify it morally. And more and more people are recognizing that it is not necessary for them to eat animals. In fact, it's necessary to eat fewer or no animals. So that's great. So promoting this idea is great. Clean meats, clean protein is going to really, I think, ex- and is already starting to really accelerate this process, and it's going to be a huge part of the change. Um, I had, um, I had, uh, sorry to cut you off there. I had Bruce Fred- Frederick, who you probably know, yeah, from from the Good Food Institute. He came on, and that was a, a very popular episode. Yeah, great. Oh, I'm not surprised. Bruce is amazing. And um, yeah, they're doing great, great work there at the GFI. So I'm very excited about that. Um, I also think that it's very important for us, for for the many, many people who are part of this uh, transformation, people who identify as, you know, whether they're vegan advocates or organizations or plant-based advocates, to really commit to developing their own ability to communicate effectively and relate in a way that's healthy to building what I call relational literacy, the um, understanding of and ability to practice healthy ways of relating so that we can make our own movements and organizations and spaces resilient and impactful. You can see that, you know, a number of movements, including the vegan movement, is there are dynamics in fighting as normal and it can actually be healthy in some ways. But we are in some ways cannibalizing ourselves by engaging in the very problematic relational dynamics, including communications, toxic communication, that we're trying to change and offset in the world. So I very much believe that learning how to relate, including how to communicate in a way that is healthy and effective, is fundamental to building strong movements, strong organizations, and the kind of resilience that we need to be as effective as individuals, as organizations, and as a movement as possible. And do you see our governments playing uh, like a, a central role in this or is this very much uh, a movement of the people and, and we, can, we can raise enough awareness about Khanism ourselves to create a monumental shift or do you think like some of those other issues we've spoken about that there will be you know, changes in, in laws and, and that will change the way that, that people obviously behave and, and, and see this issue? 
Yeah, I think it's both. I mean, governments are not abstract entities. Governments are made up of people and people are psychological beings with hearts and minds. So, you know, we have fortunately more and more people working in government who are either vegan or vegan allies. Um, I do believe that raising awareness of carnism so that people recognize carnism as an ism, as a problematic ism, can really help the issue go a long way, even if it's about getting organizations like Greenpeace and, you know, some governmental institutions to actually take a position on carnism, where they they recognize it as inherently problematic and are committed to working toward the transformation of, of the system. So I think change this kind of change, it's, this is unique. You know, we're talking about an issue that is, you know, a broadly a consumer issue, but it's also a very sy- systemic political issue. It needs to be addressed and come at from multiple angles, you know, from the bottom up, but also we can work from the top down. Beautifully put. I think maybe to close this one out, uh, I'd say the majority of the listeners of this show are, are people who are downshifting on their, their consumption of animal products. And there certainly is a, you know, a fair share of, of vegans. If you could leave them with one sort of parting note or something to, to think about in terms of what they can go away and, and, and think about and then apply in their own life, what would, what would you say? First of all, I would say that it sounds like your listeners are either vegans or vegan allies, right? So everybody who's participating here is part of the solution. And so my, my, you know, sort of parting statement would be a huge thank you and a reminder or maybe, um, you know, just pointing out that, um, this movement, the vegan movement is growing. It's growing exponentially. Awareness of veganism is growing all around the world. I've, had the privilege of traveling to many, many places around the world, over 50 countries, talking about this issue with people in positions of leadership. And um, I have not seen a single exception to the fact that awareness of veganism and support for veganism is really growing exponentially. And so I want to just, you know, thank everybody who is a part of this and, you know, point out that you are you know, a part of something that is greater than your individual self. You are a part of a social movement that is um, intimately connected with other social movements that I believe will be looked back upon as one of the most transformational movements in human history. So just thank you for being a part of this and helping bring this consciousness and this transformation to the world. And thank you, Simon, for playing uh, a really important part of this and reaching so many people and opening so many hearts and minds. It's beautiful and inspiring to, to see what you do and really an honor to talk to you about this. Thank you. And if people listening want to sort of continue this conversation with you and find you online or learn more about carnism, where would you point them? They can come to carnism.org. Okay, perfect. And then they can they can find all the socials and and everything from there. All right, Melanie, thank you so much for for joining me today. Your work is absolutely incredible. It it really inspires me to deeply think about my personal language and the way that I'm approaching my communication and, and constantly trying to be better in that and i really hope we can do this again i see this as a an open and hopefully evolving conversation so hopefully we can pick up where we've left off in a future episode absolutely i would love to thank you there we go friends isn't melanie 
so incredibly well considered and spoken. Really was a privilege to be able to sit down with her and and have that exchange and, and share it with you. There were quite a lot of take-home messages in this episode, one that I will actually go back to and, and listen to a few more times. And I don't do that often because I hate listening to myself. Personally speaking, I think this idea of acknowledging that there is no perfect vegan is critical to healthy conversations about our food choices. Also critical is acknowledging that anyone, anyone who is downshifting on their consumption of animal products and eating more plants is part of the solution, not the problem. Just because they still eat the odd egg or piece of fish does not mean they should be shamed. In all likelihood, we have no idea where they've come from and and what their personal circumstances are. Taking the, the default position of celebrating how incredible it is that they follow a plant-rich diet which is so distant from the typical Western diet is going to leave them feeling good about their decision to eat less animal products. Water those seeds, my friends, and good things shall sprout from there. All right, that's it from me. Thanks for tuning into this episode. I really do hope that you enjoyed it and found it constructive. If you did, please leave a review on the Apple Podcast app and share the show with any friends or family members that you think would draw value from listening. Finally, please do connect with Melanie on the socials at Beyond Carnism on Instagram and Twitter and let her know your feedback. I'm absolutely positive she would love to hear from you. And as I said in the outset, I do plan to turn this topic into a three or four part series to dig a little deeper and more will be revealed on that later. Until next time, stay safe, keep prioritizing fun and go water those beautiful seeds.